uh, verses 35 to 51, and these will be the scripture verses that we will be in this morning. So John chapter 1, verses 35 to 51, you can follow along with me as I read these verses. Jesus calls the first disciples. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two heard John speaking and followed Jesus. Uh, One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethesda, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. God's Word. Thanks, John. Well, I hate to break it to you, but summer's officially over uh, this past week. I know, and as much as I hate to see summer go, uh, there's certain things that I like about fall, right? There, and one of the things that I like is just the craziness of summer in the Midwest is over, and so we get back to a little bit of our schedules, our routines. You know, the kids go back to school, which really needed to happen this year. And, uh, and don't pretend like you weren't losing your mind, too. I mean, uh, th- that happens to all of us, right? Like, uh, we, we get to this place where we need some routine, we need some schedule, we need to get back to some usual things. And every fall, it seems like we kind of assess a little bit, like, what am I really about? Like, what are my goals? What are my aims in life? And we recalibrate a little bit in the fall. And the church does that too. And I love that time because we come back to what's really important. We come back to the main thing, which is written right in the hallway on the wall. And the main thing here at Life Church is we glorify Jesus Christ by making disciples in our neighborhood and beyond. We just copied and pasted the Great Commission out of Matthew 28. And that's what we're all about. That's what we always want to be about. And this text here is is a nice way of of showing us how that whole process began, how Christianity, this movement that's been going on for 2,000 years began. We get to see it at its earliest stages, and we're still a part of that. I think it's so amazing that 2 billion followers now today around the world, and we're a part of that, and it started in just this simple, humble way. And this same thing is the, is the same thing that the disciples were doing. That's the same thing that we're called to do today. And so we're going to look at it today. 
What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? As Jesus calls his first disciples. And so if you're taking notes, just right at the top of your paper, being a disciple of Jesus is, and I want us to notice five things. There are at least five things. There's probably more in this text, but five things I want to spend some time with this morning. Uh, And so first of all, being a disciple of Jesus is, number one, realizing that while we sought Jesus, Jesus was also seeking us. While we sought Jesus, he was also seeking us. I think that's so interesting. Um, About five years ago when when Ginny and I traveled to Ghana to pick up Grace, we we had to spend a lot of time in the hotel room. And maybe those of you who have adopted internationally know that too. Like, they don't have a lot of things planned out for you, so you just kind of sit around in the hotel a lot. And they get like two channels. And one of them was National Geographic. So we ended up watching over and over again this show on giant anacondas, uh, which might explain some of the dreams we had while we were over there too. I mean, this stuff is the stuff of nightmares. And I remember one of these researchers who you always just, it's like the crocodile hunter. You're like, these people have to be crazy. Like they're certifiably crazy. And they said, you know, one of the things you have to be so careful about is as you're tracking down these snakes and we're trying to measure them and find them and stuff, what you have to realize is the snakes have such keen predatory senses that they're actually tracking you. And I thought, that, could there be anything more creepy than that? Like, you're out there looking for these 30-foot snakes, and you know they're, they're tracking you down at the same time. You might as well just sit there and wait for them to come find you and strangle you. I mean, it's just, it's, that's the kind of thing that, that gives me nightmares. And, and uh, I thought, wow, that's kind of the same thing that's going on here with the disciples. Like, it's clear from the text, they're seeking the, the rabbi, they're seeking the, the Messiah, the one that was promised by the prophets. They're like, we found him, and they're looking. But little do they know... Jesus was already seeking them. Jesus had seen them from a long time before. He had already known everything that was going to happen in their lives. He had them pegged from way before. And he's kind of playing it cool, like he doesn't know what's going on. But he knew they were going to be his 12. He had already picked them out, and he had sought them. And I just take great comfort in that in my own discipleship journey, that even as I'm seeking the Lord, I know that God sought me first before I did anything, right? And that's true for every one of us who's a Christian in here today. But it's also true for us as we're seeking to make disciples of our coworkers, of our friends, of our relatives. We might feel like we're putting forward a lot of effort to introduce them to Jesus and to get the gospel into their hearts and their minds. We need to remember, we're not the only ones seeking that. Jesus is also seeking them. And that's, I would argue, a much more powerful seeking as he's going after them, all right? So that's point number one. Being a disciple of Jesus is to be sought by Jesus Point number two, being a disciple of Jesus is highly relational. It's highly relational. I love this piece. It's all throughout our text, so we're going to look at it throughout the the entirety of what John read for us here. But um, I want to start with just a real-time live survey. Um, So humor me here. We're actually going to raise our hands, all right? Um, If you're a Christian in here and you were brought to Jesus, some sort of a large event, a crusade of some sort, um, some, some, maybe a large church event or um, a stadium, a lifelike kind of thing where a, somebody was preaching and they gave a gospel call and you came forward. Raise your hand. That's how you came to Jesus? Okay. So we got a few, which is amazing. I'm not knocking any of these things, by the way. Billy Graham, lots of those kinds of things. If, you, if you're in here and you're a Christian because a door-to-door evangelist or somebody out in public you did not know um, shared the message of the gospel with you and you said yes to Jesus because of that, uh, raise your hand. If you're in here today because a family member, a parent, a close relative, or a friend introduced you to Jesus, raise your hand. That's what I'm talking about, right? It's pretty relational. 
And that's what we're going to see as we go through the text today, that, yeah, God uses a lot of different things to bring people into his kingdom, but by and large, it's one by one. It's word of mouth. It's highly relational. It's a domino effect, and it's been going on for 2,000 years, and if you're sitting here as a Christian, it's because that domino, that last domino, reached you. And um, so we'll start with John the Baptist, okay? So John is Jesus' cousin, Jesus' homeschooled cousin. He's a little weird, but he's, he's, a, he's a different kind of guy, and, and we learned about John last week, and John believes Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that, that was sent for the forgiveness of the sins of the world, and John says again, here in verse uh, 36, just like he did in verse 29 that Pastor Bill talked about last week, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. And because of his witness, two of John the Baptist's disciples decide, hey, we're going to follow Jesus. Now, I don't think they right away made, made like this decision, yeah, we're going to be lifelong followers. I think they're checking him out at this point. And that's why they ask him, they come to him and they say, uh, Rabbi, where are you staying? Which they probably wanted to ask him some other questions, but they didn't have the guts to do it just yet. But they're checking him out. They're, they're looking into it a little bit. And what does Jesus say? He says, come and see. Which wasn't saying, I want to show you my house. He's saying, come, hang out with me. Come have dinner with me. It's about the 10th hour. It's likely about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. He's like, come spend the evening with me. Let's talk. Let's chat. Get to know me a little bit. And that's what Andrew and John the Beloved did. And I got to tell you, friends, a vast majority of ministry of evangelism and disciple-making is precisely this. It's come-and-see ministry. It's just, hey, you want to come over to my place for supper? Want to have breakfast together? You want to go out for coffee? Hey, I got tickets to the game. You want to come? Come and see. You want to, you want to go out fishing? You want to go take a walk? Let's, let's go hike. Let's get our kids together. Let's play. That's what it is. It's come-and-see ministry. You want to come to church with me? You want to come to D group? Can we study the Bible together? Can I pray with you? It's that kind of thing. It's highly relational at every point. And friends, you might not feel like you're getting anywhere. This is pretty slow and tedious. I mean, this is how Christianity started, you understand. With Jesus just saying, you want to come over for dinner? That's how it all started. You might not feel like you're getting anywhere, but I would argue two billion followers later. That those are just the people that are alive today. It was pretty successful, wasn't it? And this is how it's been going since then. It might be more exciting to be at the big crusade with thousands of people all hyped up, but this is how Jesus starts his ministry. And so this is mission. This is evangelism. When you're inviting non-believers into your life to just simply come and see, to come and be with you, you're inviting them to come and see Jesus because Jesus lives in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the more confident you get of that, the more people you're going to see actually come to know the Lord. Because that is the truth. When you, when you invite people into your life, you're inviting them one at a time to come and see Jesus. It's highly relational. So they hang out with Jesus from the 10th hour, it's about 4 p.m., John and Andrew, into the night. And Andrew's convinced. He's like, all right, I got it. This guy is the guy. He's the Messiah. I'm totally convinced. So he goes and gets Simon, his brother, and tells him, look, we found the Messiah. We found the one the prophets were talking about. And then Simon comes to Jesus, and Jesus does what every normal person does when he meets somebody for the first time. It gives him a new name. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Like, uh, yeah, you're Dave, but you're going to be Larry now. I mean, I just have never met anyone like that. Yeah, Larry. Larry's like, yeah, that's the right name, right? That's fitting. I mean, I, just, I, I wonder what Peter did there, or what Simon, in this case, did there. But he just, yep, 
that's not going to be your name anymore. And I mean, I think it's pretty cool because the name there is Cephas or Peter or Petra, which means rock. So sorry, Dwayne Johnson, if you're listening. I hate to tell you this, but Peter's the original rock. The name was taken and given to him by Jesus, so he's the guy. A cool name coming from Jesus, but it's like, this guy must be in charge. He's passing out new names. And Jesus finds Philip the next day, and he says, follow me. And Philip does. We don't get any more dialogue about that. But then Philip goes to Nathaniel, his friend. And Nathaniel isn't as easy of a convert. Okay, so this is highly relational because now you've got to deal with questions. Nathaniel has questions, and he has good questions. So Nathaniel's kind of like one of our worst nightmares if we're sharing our faith for the first time, right? Like, we just want to get through it and have them say, yes, let's pray the prayer, right? And Nathaniel's kind of got this furrowed brow. He's like, Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip's like, great. He has questions, and it's a good question. He has questions, and it's a good question. And Nathaniel is from Cana, which is also a town in Galilee nearby. We're going to be there next week in John 2. But um, Jesus was from Nazareth, also a town in Galilee. And if you're from a small town, maybe you can get this a little bit better. That This is kind of a small town rivalry, like you, maybe you're, their football team beat your football team or whatever, and you kind of hate each other. Um, I think of it as, you know, when I was at USF, we had this rivalry thing going on with Augustana. We would teepee the Viking, and they would teepee the Cougar, and there would be streaking involved and lots of different weird stuff. And then after I left, I found out it really escalated after we were, like, dumpsters were on fire and eggs were being thrown. I was like, wow, we're pretty much the same school. You know, what's going on here? But we, like, hated them. And, and it was just, like, a block away. And that's kind of, I think, some of what's going on here with Nathaniel's question. But there's more to it than that. It's, it's not just a, a rivalry of townships. It's like every Jewish person knew the Messiah was to be born not in Nazareth, but in Bethlehem. That's what all the prophecies said, Bethlehem with its like, kingly pedigree. That's the town of David, the great King David. So obviously the Messiah's got to come out of Bethlehem. And Nathaniel's like, Nazareth? I don't think so, Philip. You better check your sources. Jesus the Nazarene? No, that's not right. It's a great question. It's a great reason for some doubt. And certainly, as you go along, as you are talking with coworkers and friends and relatives, you're going to encounter really good questions about the Bible, about Christianity, about faith, about God, the existence of God in general. And you're going to get to where Philip is, and that's okay. I think Philip gives us a great blueprint for how to handle that moment where you're like a little flustered and you're like, gee, that's a great question. Never thought of that. Uh, and, and so Philip doesn't do what you know, modern people do, and he doesn't do what more traditional religious people do. He doesn't take either of those wrong paths. Um, let's see what he does. So the modern response to a good question like this is just like, well, it's okay, Nathaniel. You know, if Jesus is true for me, he's, he's not true for you, that's fine. Let's just not argue about things that don't matter. Whatever's true for you is true for you, and whatever's true for me is true for me, and it's just all kind of relative. He doesn't say that, no, not at all. And he doesn't do the traditional religious thing, which is just like, Nathaniel, just believe because I told you to believe. Anybody have that happen before in life? Like, I just stop asking questions. Just believe because that's what the Bible says. That's what I told you, man. Like, stop asking questions. Um, he doesn't take either of those routes. He takes a, a completely different route. You can kind of just see him kind of thinking through it, and he goes, ah, just come and see. 
says the same thing that Jesus says. He says, come and see. Let's look together. Let's examine the evidence together. I don't know the answer to your question, Nathaniel, but we can find it together. Let's go look at him together and check it out. So that's exactly what we want you to do as disciples and as disciple makers. As you are out there at, talking to your coworkers and your friends and your family members about Jesus, you're going to run into these big questions. And we don't expect you to have all the answers. So just say, hey, look, I don't really know, but I know some people that might know the answer. I'm committed to helping you find it and walking with you through it. See, it's highly relational. That's why we're not just making converts. See, we're making disciples, which entails that you're going to have to walk with them through their doubts and their questions and their struggles. And you're also going to have to have people that do the same. So you just got to get okay with fumbling this around a bit. You know, you haven't really tried reaching people. If you haven't just totally botched it and fumbled over your words and just be, feel like a total idiot, that's when you know I'm actually now starting to get on mission because I'm completely screwing it up. And if you're really going to see people come to faith in Jesus, you got to be like Philip here and be okay not having the answer all the time. So he just says, let's go together. Let's process this together. And that's one of the reasons why we're always encouraging you all, no matter what stage you're at in your faith journey, to be really committed to having a few people that you're going deep with so that you can journey through the difficult questions, the doubts, the, the, the bad days, the, the, the days where the, all the stuff is hitting the fan and you're like, man, life, the wheels are falling off the cart. I need to process this. What does it look like to follow Jesus? And people that you can share the victories and wins with, right, to celebrate those days too. We want you doing that in community because being a disciple is all about relationship. It's about come and see ministry, highly relational at every point. That's point number two. Don't worry, the rest aren't as long. Point number three, being a disciple is not just about believing, but about following. It's not just about believing, but about following. Look at verse 43, where Jesus calls Philip. And notice he doesn't say, Philip, do you agree with my teachings? Philip, uh, do you believe who I, I say that I am? Okay, good. Then you're done. You know, peace out, man. You're, you're fine. He says, no, follow me. Follow me. See, Jesus doesn't just want to be a, a good moral teacher in your life. He doesn't just want to be a consultant in your life. He wants to be Lord, God, Savior, King, Leader. There's a reason why in the Great Commission, Jesus says, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to what? Obey. obey, right? Sometimes we skip over that part. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. That's what Jesus wants us to do. So if you're, if you're saying, hey, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Jesus is my Lord. But there's like no marks of obedience anywhere in your life. You know, there's no effort put forth to following in his footsteps. You might have the faith like demons have. Right? We're told in the scriptures that demons have tons of faith in Jesus. They believe him to be who he says he is more than any of us because they've experienced him, they've encountered him, and they tremble at his name. So believing does, is not the same thing as following. Believing is not the same thing as following. There's a big difference. So what does this look like practically? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, first of all, it means that he doesn't follow you. There's a clear, and we might think, well, that's obvious, but there's a clear leadership structure here. And what I've encountered in my own life um, and what I've encountered in lots of other Christians that oftentimes we want Jesus to subscribe to our ideas. We want him to go along with our plans, our ambitions, and just to sign off on those things. 
And we rarely ever just stop and say, Lord, what do you want for my life? Sometimes we forget, who's following who here? Like, Jesus is not a good follower. Let me just tell you that. He's the leader. He's the king. He's the Lord. I know he's humble. But he's coming back as a king. And we mustn't treat him um, as anything else than that. So, first of all, it means that we need to remember who's following who. But the second thing it means to follow Jesus, I think is summed up best in, you know, a, a hymn that many of us probably grew up singing, Trust and Obey. You know, how many of you like this hymn? It's a really simple discipleship hymn, right? It's about what does it mean to follow Jesus? And when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. When we do his goodwill, he abides with us still with all who will trust and obey. So following Jesus is very simply trusting him or having faith in him that he is who he said he is and then obeying him. That's really what it comes down to at the end of the day. And the scriptures and even in John 15, we're going to look at other language that the Bible uses for following, abiding in Christ, following, walking with the Lord. The song uses it too. It's like step by step, asking the Lord, communicating with the Lord each day, Lord, what do you want for my life? That's what it means to follow Jesus. What do you want for my life? You call the shots. You're the one in charge. And so, all right, take the next step. That's what you want for my life. And I'm not saying that God gives you perfect clarity into every step that you take. Sometimes he's just like, you choose. And that's fine too. But, but the heart of a disciple is always seeking. It's saying, Lord, my life is yours. You've been, I've been bought with a price. I belong to you, so what do you want? Okay, take the next step. Do you want me to make money in this kind of a way? Is this, is this a godly way to make money? Does this honor you? Is this the person that you would like me to marry? Would you like me to get married? Do you want me to stay single? Do you want me to you know, um, consider this for my children? Or All kinds of different things. We're asking the Lord and we're following step by step by step. And for some of you, maybe you're at the very beginning of your journey and it's just like, all right, I need to get a Bible. Okay, I, need, I have a Bible. I need to find it. Where did it go? And I need to open it and start reading it. I need to develop a simple prayer life. And that's just what it looks like to follow the Lord. For others of you, maybe you've been following for a longer period of time and it's staying open in your heart to big things that the Lord might ask you. But the mark of a disciple is just a yes in your heart for the Lord Jesus, no matter what he asks you. And that's daunting. As I was talking to John about um, this movement going on in Iran, this underground church led by mostly women, it's like some of the things that they're saying is like, wow, I... I don't know if I'm a disciple because they have such an abandon to like, I'll do whatever Jesus asks. And I'm like, would I do that? And I got two great examples from you um, this week. Uh, two of the women of our congregation talked to me this week about just would I pray for them about some things that they were considering that they thought the Lord hasn't asked me to do this yet, but I just want to make sure that my heart would say yes if he did. I'm like, that's a disciple. That's, a, that's the heart of a disciple right there because there may never be a no in our hearts. And I'm telling you, this is a wrestling place for me. Sometimes I stop praying because I don't want to hear the next thing. And have you ever do that? Yeah, like I just like resist praying because I'm like, ah, I, I, I can't say yes right now. And so I'll like even resist the place of prayer. But I'm telling you, the heart of a disciple, even though we might wrestle with it, there's always a yes in our hearts for Jesus. I'm wondering, what are the next steps for you? What's the Lord saying? Okay, here, take the next step. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. We trust and obey. Being a disciple is not just believing, but following. That's the third thing. The fourth thing, being a disciple is being seen 
and known by Jesus, being seen and known by Jesus. Have you ever had a situation where, you know, maybe a famous person or someone you really admired or a crush that you had um, came up to you and, like, knew your name, and it just kind of blew you out of the water? I remember being um, a freshman in high school, and I can talk about homeschool kids, by the way, because I was a homeschool kid when it wasn't cool to be a homeschool kid. Now it's cool. I'm like, man, I would love to be homeschooled when it's cool. Now every kid wants to be homeschooled, and it's like the cool thing. But when I was homeschooled, not cool, right? I was homeschooled fourth through eighth grade. Lots of um, awkward social moments there. And then I decided to go back to high school so that I could play sports. And so I'm a freshman in high school with braces and a weird haircut. And I remember one of the, the senior girls who was also on the cheerleading squad came up to me one time, and she said, hi, Dave. And I was like, whoa, I didn't know what to do with that. I was just like, how does she know who I am? I'm this weird, you know, I know you think I'm so cool now. How could I have ever been weird? <laughs> the coolness has never been my thing, all right? It's just not, it's not what I was built for. But I was just, I was kind of just bolted. I was just like, what do I do with this? Like, just kind of didn't have categories for that moment. And I just imagined, what was Nathaniel thinking here in this story when the God of the universe Jesus Christ, like, reads his book, knows him, sees him, and is dialed into his life. He must have just felt like, I, I just don't know what to do. And that's what we see happening here. Look at verse 47. You know, Jesus calls out Nathanael, and he's like, this is an Israelite. Behold, an Israelite indeed, in, in whom there's no deceit. He's like, this guy's the real deal. This guy is, he's, he's um, no holds bar. He tells it like it is. He's authentic, he's true and true, a Hebrew, he's, a, he's an Israelite. And apparently, Nathaniel must have been known for some of that stuff. I mean, he could be blunt, we saw that before. He's like, can anything good come from Nazareth? Kind of wears his heart on his sleeve kind of guy. And apparently, that must have been meaningful when Jesus called it out to him, because Nathaniel's like, how do you know me? How do you know me? And then I just picture Jesus leaning over, and he's like, I saw you under the fig tree. And none of the commentators, they all wonder, what was going on under the fig tree? How did he, there was something happening under the fig tree because Nathaniel's eyes got huge. Like, oh my word, he saw me under the fig tree. Was he solving a Rubik's Cube? Was he having a corn dog, an orange Julius? I don't know what he's doing under the fig tree. Nobody knows what he's doing under the fig tree. Nobody knew, but Nathaniel and Jesus knew what was going on under the fig tree. And Nathaniel knew there was nobody that could have seen him. Jesus wasn't anywhere with an eye shot of him. And Jesus says, I saw you there. It's not a miracle we talk about very often, but it is a miracle that must have been incredibly meaningful for Nathaniel to be seen and known and loved. It wasn't just a miracle. It was the thing that his heart craved for his whole life. I mean, isn't that a craving of a heart to be seen, to be known by people, but also to be seen and known and loved by God? And Nathaniel experienced that. And I just wonder, have you had this kind of an encounter with Jesus where you knew he saw you? where you knew he loved you, where you knew he said, you're not alone, I'm here with you. I haven't left you, I haven't forsaken you. I can think of so many testimonies that have come out of this church in the past couple years where it's just like, that's too specific, that's too much of a, an answer to prayer that it has to be Jesus is telling you, specifically you, I see you, I know you, I haven't left you. As I was thinking through, there's so many examples from my life and I didn't even read my prayer journal, these are just two that popped in my head. Um, there was a time when this one week I was preaching on money. And, of course, I'm the financial nerd in our house. 
and I also stress about money uh, a lot. And it's not good, it's not godly, and I've worked really hard. To, and so this week, I'm working really hard to get ready for the sermon, not stress about money, and try to get the right heart about money. And sure enough, uh, I'm at seminary, so we have like $2 to our name. And um, I'm preaching on money, and um, we're going through the Dave Ramsey program, you remember this. And so we have our cool little you know, cash envelope with all like our whole life savings in at the beginning of the month, because you got to put it all in the envelope. And we go to Menards for something, and this giant storm comes up. And we're carrying our kids out with our stuff from Menards, and the you know, rain's falling. And we shove the cart in the cart corral, and we take off, and then we both look at each other like, do you have the cash envelope? No, do you? No. And we just you know, peel around, and we hustle back. We couldn't have been gone 10 minutes. And we cannot find the cash envelope anywhere. And so we lose our whole month's worth of cash. That's the problem with the Dave Ramsey thing. <laughs> you lose it, it never comes back. <laughs> so um, he didn't say that in the program. But, but I'm just devastated, and I'm like, and I'm preaching on money, and I'm just sour about it, and so I'm, I'm basically preparing this sermon for myself. And on Saturday night, I'm like, Lord, I don't want to preach about it. I really shouldn't. You know, you should find someone else. I know it's Saturday night. I'm not going to call Pastor Bill, but if you could find someone else, that would be great, because I don't have the right heart to do this. And that night, someone broke into my car. So I go out to my car to go preach, and I, I'm like, what the heck? My car got broken into. Thanks. You know, and, and uh, everything's strewn all over in my car. And then I'm like, wait a minute. There's nothing in here anybody would want. And as I start examining, everything's been shuffled through. There's a pile of cash laying on the front seat with an ID from a school and a device for smoking marijuana. <laughs> so God said to me very specifically, if I wanted to give you money, I can do it from someone who's trying to steal from you. <laughs> and I got... 20-some bucks from a guy smoking pot, probably didn't know what day it was, and he left me, he's trying to steal from me and, and ended up leaving me his stash. And I was like, wow, God sees me, God knows me, this is incredible, I'm rich. It was like, it was the coolest day. And then I remember, you know, when we adopted, and of course I'm stressing about finances there, because I'm like, that's like, that's more money than I've ever heard of, how are we going to make that happen? And and my wife convinced me, like, let's just go. Let's just take the first step. And we did. And then we got the first bill. And I'm like, this is $4,000. Okay, how are we going to do? We can't pay for that. We don't have any savings. We were just out of seminary. Or we were, in, we were going into seminary. I can't remember. And um, that very week, somebody who did not know anything about that process came up to us and gave us a check. And guess how much it was for? 4000 exactly. God says, I see you. I know you. I'm with you. Do you have those kinds of moments because that's what it means to be a disciple, to know that Jesus is with you, that he hasn't left you. Finally, to be a disciple of Jesus is to be in awe of Jesus. Obviously, this produces awe in Nathaniel as Jesus reads his book and tells him what he was doing under the fig tree. But a disciple is someone who's in awe of Jesus. They stand in wonder at his mighty acts and that he can see them so clearly and knows them so specifically. And, you know, Nathaniel responds in this awe, and basically Jesus says, oh, you like that, huh? Well, you ain't seen nothing yet. I got more to show you, Nathaniel. I mean, I, if I was Jesus, I probably would have said, oh, you like that, huh, Nathaniel, that I saw you under the fig tree when I couldn't see you? Yeah, that's pretty cool, but you're going to see dead people raised. You're going to see me walk on water. You're going to see me feed 5,000 people with just a boy's lunch. You're going to see me heal the, the blind and the lame and the deaf, and you're going to see all kinds of cool things. But instead, Jesus gives him this, this picture it's a Jewish picture for sure. And N.T. Wright thinks this is an incredibly important piece of the puzzle to figuring out this passage. Because in our 
modern time, it's hard to know what's going on here, but Jesus says, you're going to see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That was his favorite term for himself. Open heaven. Angels ascending and descending. What does that mean? Well, N.T. Wright says that he believes that's because there's the significance of that story. That's a story from Genesis. It's Jacob's ladder. We had this dream, and the place was called Bethel. It became a really important place in Israel, a place of worship. And that place, Bethel, meant the house of God. So Jesus is saying, look, according to you know, John's gospel, is all about Jesus coming as the tabernacle. The, the word was flesh and tabernacled among us. And so now Jesus is saying to Nathaniel, look, God's come to be with you. Now you don't have to go to a temple anymore to be with God. You don't have to go to a tabernacle anymore to be with God. You come right here to me. And I'm going to show you over and over and over again that heaven has invaded earth, that God has come to be with his people again, and I'm him. And Nathaniel just stands in awe. He's like, whoa, he's here. And you know, I've noticed this about disciples that I really admire. They just never get over Jesus. They stand in awe of Jesus. They just, they're just blown away by him. He continues to expand their belief of what's possible. And they keep that posture towards him. And I just wonder... When was the last time you stood in awe of the Lord Jesus? When was the last time you just paused and said, wow, look at Jesus. Look what he's done for me. Or have you become disappointed, disgruntled, kind of crotchety and old and, ah, he never does anything for me, kind of bitter? Maybe you become bitter because of that following thing. You had the circle wrong, like Jesus is supposed to follow you and do your thing and sign off on your plans. And so now when he's not cooperating because he's a bad follower, you're all upset. I'm here to tell you today, there's always a reason for us to stand in awe of our Jesus. And John the Baptist told us about it in verse 36. He says, behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. And, and in verse 29 earlier, he said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I wonder if, it was, if Jesus, all Jesus ever did for you was take away your sin, would that not be enough to stand in awe of him forever and ever? If he could remove your sin, make you guiltless, give you salvation. John, uses, John the Baptist uses this metaphor, the Lamb of God, to really get at the ears of his Jewish hearers. Because they, they would have immediately associated that with their great feast, the Passover. Right? And we, some of us know what the Passover was, but for those of you who don't, uh, the Passover was when um, God said, all right, I'm going to finally crush the grip of Pharaoh on my people in Egypt. I'm going to finally liberate them with one last plague. It's going to be the angel of death is going to come into the land and take the life of every firstborn. You can imagine how serious this is. He had tried everything else. He's like, this is going to work, but I'm going to protect my people by, by giving them a plan. Anybody who takes a lamb, a pure, perfect, spotless lamb, they shed the blood of the lamb, collect the blood, and paint that blood over the doorpost of their house. The angel of death will pass over them. And John the Baptist is saying, look, this is our lamb. This is God's lamb. This is the one that's provided for us, the perfect, spotless one that when his blood is shed, it covers over us. And death hits him full on, but passes over us. That's our Jesus. That's our lamb. That's the one. So there's always a reason to stand in awe of him to say what the old hymn said, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Can you fathom that? That God, I mean, 
not a cheerleader, God. God would come and say, you're worth enough that I'll give my own son for you. You're worth enough that I'll give my own life for you so that you can be saved, so you can pass from death to life. A disciple is someone in awe of Jesus. Maybe you're here today and this is the first time that you've heard this good news. Praise God. You didn't know it, but he was seeking you. He was after you and he's found you today and you should just come. Start your journey as a disciple. I know you might have questions like Nathaniel. We're here to help you. We're here to walk with you. We're here to journey with you. It's not a one-day thing. It's a lifetime thing, right? There'll be people up here to pray for you. Maybe you're here today and you've been a disciple for a while, but you're saying, Pastor Dave, there's very little evidence of obedience in my life. And maybe you've gotten it backwards. You thought Jesus was supposed to come behind you and make your life great and just, and just support you and your plans. And today's going to be an opportunity for you to flip that around. Say, I'm going to follow Jesus, not the other way around. I'm going, to, I'm going to ask him what he wants for my life, not the other way around. And maybe you're here today and you've been following for many years and you've said lots of yeses to the Lord Jesus and it's been hard, amen? It gets hard sometimes, really hard. I mean, Jesus, we're following the guy they crucified. I think it's going to get hard. And maybe you've stopped even praying because you're like, ah, I don't know if I have another yes. I just want to encourage you, wherever the Lord Jesus leads you, he will take care of you. He will provide for you. He will, he will encourage you. He will sustain you. Wherever he leads you, he will take care of you. And I want to encourage you to keep praying because a lot of times I've found that in those times of resistance, what the Lord's coming to me with is not, here, I'm going to overload you and give you something else that I want you to do, but he's saying, I just want to give you what's necessary to sustain you and what I've already asked you to do. So keep praying, keep seeking him, keep asking the questions. What do you have for me, Lord? For all of us, Jesus is calling, follow me, he says. Now it's up to us to simply trust and obey. Amen? Amen. Let's pray as the worship team and the prayer team comes forward. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that somehow it's true that you came to earth as a man and you called us into following you, into your team to reconcile people from every tribe, tongue, and nation into your family to be adopted as your sons and daughters. We're just so grateful, Lord. We just stand in awe of you. and We just don't really have categories for it, but, but we're thankful. And so I just pray that you would hear our hearts today, the gratitude of our lives, and that we'd be able to just one day at a time, one step at a time, one moment at a time, turn our lives over to you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.